For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, church. Um, this is Seth, one of our junior high boys, and he's going to join me today as we do our three-ish things for you. But before we get to the three-ish things, sorry, you don't know about this. I was just told it. Uh, there's somebody's special birthday on Tuesday. Now, all your birthdays are special, but when you reach 99, that's special. So George Brewster turns 99 on Tuesday. Yeah, so where are you in the crowd? Oh, there you are, I see you now. 99, I'm sure he has stories. Actually, I know he has stories. So if you wanna have stories with him, Prepare to carve out your entire day to hear those stories. Um, so three-ish things. This summer, uh, New Life Youth is partnering with Onside Athletics. And they are a sports camp that happens, like we pick the day. And so in August, there we go, August 15th to 19th is when we will be doing a sports camp with them. A soccer one, ages five, grades five to seven. Uh, this is really exciting because it's not only being able to do sports, but then we get to have conversations about God and what that looks like within their life. So we are very excited about that. Registration is open. So if your kid is in those grades, I encourage you to register. And this is actually an easy way for your kids to invite a friend. Um, it's not going over to an overnight sleeping camp where some kids don't like that. Uh, instead, we just get to have a day hanging out at soccer camp. Seth? Okay, so the second of the three-ish things is on Easter Sunday, there's going to be a sunrise service at 6 a.m. Uh, it'll be at Cowichan Bay at Marine Gateway Park. So during the sunrise service, there's going to be some baptisms. And if this is something you've been thinking about, uh, feel free to talk to Pastor Scott about it baptisms in the ocean. How cool is that? Baptism on Easter Sunday. That's so exciting. Uh, so yeah, if you are, if this is something you've been thinking about, please contact Pastor Scott. Our last three-ish thing, as Andrew said here, we are quickly approaching Easter and we have a few things available for you. The Seder meal is one of them. So you can register for that online. Um, info about it is actually at the info desk there. You can also see any details that has to go with Easter by going to our website at newlifechurch.com, Easter week 2022. Uh, so check that out. But that's it for us today. Um, we're just about to show a video from a cool, and just to kind of give you a heads up, it's filmed in a cool. Uh, the audio isn't the best, but the content is really good. So please enjoy our community story today. Thank you. Good morning, friends from New Life Church. This is Ingrid from FH Guatemala. I'm so happy and excited to greet you I am actually in a pool. Thank you very much for all your support, for believing in us. Your help and your support allows us to continue working and advancing. We want to share great news with you. So first of all, we want to share the greatest news of all. The children in a pool are back to school. So we're super excited for that. The grades have been divided into two groups. 
So what they are doing is that they are rotating the assistants and they are going to school twice a week. So we are very excited for that because even though it's only two days, the kids are very happy, very excited of this opportunity. On the other hand, savings groups keep on working strong. We have one new savings group that was created this year. So now in Atul, we have a total of five savings groups and we're very happy for that. Also, the amount of the loans that they are requesting is going high. So that lets you know that they have faith on the future. There has been new businesses that are being opened related to selling clothes, of doing our traditional blouses, the wipiles, and these ladies that are beginning with their business, they are obviously being supported by FH through your help to the family gardens that you know is very important in the households there is a new project related to rabbits even though we know that rabbits are so sweet and sometimes they are like pets for us what FH is doing is trying to provide a way for the families to have protein in their meals so we're very excited for that. We began with this last year. So with seven families, they were giving rabbits. Now what they have to do is that those two rabbits, a male and female, they have to have baby bunnies. Those bunnies will be shared with other families so they can start growing their rabbits. They also receive trainings and cooking lessons of how to prepare rabbits and actually the families are happy and they liked it a lot. These are some examples of everything that's going on here in Acolso New Life. Thank you, thank you very much. May God bless you. Thank you for believing in everything and thank you for allowing us to help them provide Acol with all your support. We also want to let you know that we have begun already with the meetings face-to-face -face in some of our programs. We keep advancing with the volunteer mothers, with the church leaders, with the community leaders. There's so much going on in the midst of all the struggle, but we're happy to let you know that the people of Kabul is strong, has faith in the future, and are thriving to move forward to have a better future with the trust in our Lord. So once again, thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you're doing in Akul and thank you for partnering with FH Guatemala. I hope to see you soon when they allow the teams to come back. But in the meantime, have us in your prayers and we keep praying for you. So God bless you. I'll see you next time. It was September of 1938, and uh, Adolf Hitler decided that he was going to um, just sort of stroll in and, uh, and annex, essentially steal uh, what was known at the time as the Sudetenland. Uh, the Sudetenland was a, a region around Germany that had, uh, was part of the German Empire before the First World War, part of the sanctions that came after the First World War. Uh, it was removed from Germany, and so Hitler decided it was time for him to simply take it back. Uh, and so he strolled in and took it. And it was interesting, as you look back now in history, uh, that the, the Western powers in Europe in particular kind of just let it happen. Uh, they were worried. Uh, they were nervous about, uh, about, trying to, about poking the bear. 
Uh, they, it was only 20 years ago. The Great War happened, and they didn't, they didn't want another conflict. And so together, the Western powers had a policy of appeasement, saying, let's just, let's just let him have it. And they felt bad for him, too. And Germany had suffered quite a bit in, in some of the sanctions. And it had been 20 years. And let's just let Hitler have the Sudetenland, and, and that'll be enough. And he said that's all he wants. And so they kind of just rolled over and, and sort of let him have it. Um, now, as we know, Hitler uh, was surprised at how easy it was to take the Sudetenland and decided that the Western powers were weak and they were afraid and that he was going to have free reign to simply conquer as he pleased. And so he then used the Sudetenland as a springboard into Poland and beyond. Uh, and it led to World War II and 60 million people dead later. Um, what we see is that the Neville Chamberlain, the, the Prime Minister of Britain, and, and the European powers, they, they tried to be nice. They, they tried to simply be nice and polite. Um, but what we see here in this story, and I think we ha have experienced in our lives, is sometimes um, the nice thing is not the right thing. Um, now, we know as Canadians that being nice is kind of, it's kind of our thing. Uh, it's kind of our identity as Canadians. Being nice has been defined as being pleasant, being agreeable, and being polite. And now I've been reading some, uh, some sort of sociology and, and um, philosophy lately about uh, the shift in our culture over the last 50 years. And one of the big things that's happened is we've become far more um, emotionally attuned, let's say. Where once upon a time, being polite and agreeable meant giving you your political and economic freedom. Um, today, being polite, being nice, means that we actually feel that we have emotional rights. And that for, for someone to cause emotional distress is actually violence. Uh, and so to be nice to someone, to be agreeable, to be polite, to be pleasant, actually means that we don't do emotional distress. And where am I going with this? I believe that in what we'll call, let's call it pop theology. That's theology that happens in Hollywood, theology that happens on social media. That, that popular theology has developed this line of, of reasoning. If God is good, and we believe that he is, if God is good, therefore he must be nice. Right? Because someone in our culture who isn't nice isn't good. They're written off, perhaps, you know, canceled. Someone who isn't nice isn't good. And so, therefore, if God is good, therefore, ergo, God is nice. And if God is nice, then that means he would not do anything that would deprive me of my happiness. He would not cause me emotional distress. I think as we, as we view kind of modern day 21st century Canadian pop theology, this is the line of reasoning. That if God is good, then God is nice. And if God is nice, then God wouldn't cause me any emotional distress. Therefore, he wouldn't deprive me of any happiness. And I've been wrestling this week as we've been in the gospel of Matthew. And towards the end of Matthew, there's some tough stuff. Jesus says some, he, he, he throws down some woes on the Pharisees. He's got this apocalyptic language about, you know, stars being cast down to the ground and violence and wars. 
there's, there's this talk about the sheep and the goats and about judgment and about separation and exclusion. And I realize one of the reasons why the end of Matthew is really difficult is simply because it doesn't sound very nice. Um, and here's one particular verse that stood out at me this week. Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple. And so this is right before the passion. So this is immediately before Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified. Jesus left the temple and he was going away. And when his disciples came to point, uh, his, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, "You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will be not one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." The disciples very innocently are making pleasant conversation. They've just been in Jerusalem. They're walking out and they just say to Jesus, "Hey, Jesus, isn't the temple impressive?" And Jesus goes really dark, where he says, yep, and every one of those stones is going to get thrown down and broken. Whoa, Jesus, chill out. It's like, imagine going to Disneyland with the kids, and you're walking away from amazing day together, and the kids say, isn't Disneyland great? And you respond by, yeah, and someday a meteor is going to turn it to dust. Um, Jesus goes pretty harsh, pretty quick. Um, the temple was of the utmost importance to people in, in, in Israel in this day. The temple was the political center of Israel. The temple was the religious center of Israel. It was the economic center of Israel. It was their identity. It was the most important place. It was what united all of the people as they were dispersed around the Mediterranean. It was the uniting force. They all had the temple. And the temple was initially built as this place where God connects with human beings, where it was where God dwelt. Um, but even within the temple, there were all these divisions. And so you had the Holy of Holies where God, that was God's place. And there was this big curtain, and only the high priest one time a year could go in and be in God's presence. And then the sort of the next uh, spot in the temple was where some of the priests were able to go in. A few more people, priests were able to go in and make these certain sacrifices and then outside of that, there was another courtyard, and that was only for Jewish people. And that's where the sacrifices happened. And at every layer, the temple shows that God is connecting with humanity, but there are barriers in place. That it's not an unobstructed direction towards, towards God. And then outside of that, there's the court of the Gentiles. Again, showing that there's separation. That you can, you can come towards God, but there's a separation. And it was the place where sacrifices were to be made, where the people had to deal with their sin before God. The irony is that it was about connection with God. And here we have Jesus himself, God in the flesh, in the temple. And they're about to bring him back in the temple right after this. Where God himself is there, and what do they do? They condemn him to execution. There's an irony there. And in 70 AD, Jesus, you know, the disciples then ask him later in Matthew 24, they say, hey, when are these things going to happen? And Jesus says, um, you know, down the road that, that it's going to be cataclysmic, that it's going to be bad, that there's judgment coming, and the temple is going to be destroyed. And in 70 AD, a very important time in history, 70 AD, the Romans came in under General Titus, and absolutely, it was eight months of siege around Jerusalem. Uh, one historian says about a million people died. It was awful. It was unspeakable. When you read the accounts of Josephus, unspeakable. Cannibalism was going on. A million people died, and the Romans tore the temple down, and it has never been rebuilt to this day. 
And it wasn't even the first time that happened. In 586 BC, similar judgment. The people were, were disobeying. They were chasing after false gods, all these idols. And God, again, sends the Babylonians. And the Babylonians destroy Solomon's temple. And, and as I was reading this, one of the thoughts was, gee, God, that's not very nice. It wasn't a nice thing to do. And it got me really asking the question, is God nice? And that seems like a blasphemous question to even ask. Is God nice? As we would describe it. And if so, what do we do with the parts of the Bible that seem objectionable? Our culture has been, has been going in this direction of acceptance and tolerance and pluralism. And, and again, in this pop theology, what we've kind of done is gone, okay, I, I believe that, that niceness and love, as we might call it, is the most important value. And that's something culturally we'll say. And so, therefore, that must be God's priority. And then we'll go into the Bible and we'll find some what are called proof texts. Where we'll go, okay, well, I like some verses here. Um, God is love. I like that in 1 John. We'll take that. That shows that, that God is nice and God is loving. Um, judge not lest ye be judged. Oh, there's another good one. Yep. Um, let him who was without st uh, sin cast the first stone. For God so loved the world. And we can proof text and say, yes. So God is all about acceptance and tolerance and being nice and loving. But then what do we do with the parts of scripture that don't line up with that? Here's what's happening culturally. And not just culturally, in some denominations, in, in sort of some of the more, it's not a great word, but liberal strands of theology, is you look at something like Leviticus. Leviticus, with all of its condemnations and abhorrences and all the things that Leviticus says we can't do. And what this pop theology says is we just take Leviticus and we do that. It's outdated, it's irrelevant, it's kind of boring, we don't really need it. And then we, we look at the conquests, we look at the conquests of the land. And well, that was barbaric, and you know what, maybe it didn't even actually happen. Because that doesn't line up with the niceness of God, and, and wouldn't we call that evil? And we look at the conquests, well maybe, maybe it didn't actually happen. Maybe it was just propaganda, and, and then we take the conquests and we rip those out. And then we look at Paul, and we look at, we, we look at Paul's theology on sexuality, and we go, well, Paul was obviously homophobic, and we ripped that out. And then we look at Paul's view on marriage, and go, well, Paul was obviously sexist, and so we ripped that out. And then we look at the miracles and go, well, we can't explain those, and so what do we do with the miracles? Well, maybe they didn't actually happen, and we just ripped those out. They were just additions later. And what we're seeing culturally is that, that over the last few hundred years, we, we've taken this, this God-centric philosophy, theology, and we've put ourselves in the center of it all. This humanism. Where we say, I am the authority over the Bible. And I get to choose and determine what God values and what he doesn't. It's, this, it's called a hermeneutic spiral, where we determine what God likes, what God cares about, 
and then we read it into the text and the parts that don't line up with what we like, we just dismiss them, we ignore them, we go, ah, oh, those were later scribal editions, oh, it was an error, oh, it was just a product of its times. And what happens is we become the authority and we become God. I had a prof in Bible college once say, if we want to understand the Bible, then we need to know the Bible. And the proper way to interpret Scripture is not to come in and say, here's what I think God values most. It's actually to go, what does the Bible have to say? And we allow the Bible to determine God's priorities, and then we interpret that through the Bible itself. And so that's what we tried to do a few months ago when we did the Old Testament series with the dailies. And say, listen, there's stuff in the Old Testament that's difficult. The, you know, the, the conquest of the land is difficult. And David is messy. And the kings are messed up. And there's difficult stuff. And we can ignore it and we can dismiss it and go, ah, it doesn't really matter. Or, ah, oh, it was just a product of its times. Or, you know, God has evolved. Or, you know, we can, we can all of these things. Or we go and we wrestle with it and we go, what does this actually have to tell you about who God is? And if that confronts my perception of him, well then it's my perception that needs to change. And then we get a deeper, fuller view, a more complicated view. Uh, uh, and then we go back to the Bible with that understanding. See, the problem is when we tear out Leviticus, we tear out a perspective that God has on purity and how important purity is. In our lives, that, that, that this removal of sin and this pursuit of him. And when we tear out the conquests of the land, we tear out God's view on humanity and God's perspective on sin. And, and his view on humanity apart from his work in their lives. And when we tear out Paul and his view of sexuality, well then we tear out something important about grace as well, and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that there's grace for all of us, and that life is not found in any one thing but in Jesus alone, and that is our identity and our hope, no matter how we feel about ourselves, and, and there's something important there. When we tear out Paul's view on marriage, we also tear out this amazing authority and submission that we see in the Trinity, in God himself, where Jesus submits to the Father, and the Father is an authority over the Son, but there's this mutual Mutual submission and love, and we tear that out and miss that about God as well. And when we tear out the miracles, well, then we tear out the resurrection. And then what is our hope? We're just a group of people who come together as a social club. In my 18 years of trying formally and informally to study the Bible, the hermeneutic principle, this, this interpretation principle that I keep coming back to when it comes to the Bible and how to understand it, is that God is not nice. God is holy. As I thought about, after hundreds of these opportunities to speak to you in different ways, what is the most important thing I can leave you with? I think it's a view on the holiness of God. Isaiah encounters God. And it's not even, I mean, I can't, I, Isaiah falls in his face in fear, first of all. But the, there's these angels that are around God himself. And here's, here's what it says in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the longer someone's train was, the more important they were. And so it's this visual imagery of the importance and the majesty of God. 
And above him stood the seraphim, and these were angels, and each had six wings. With two, they covered their face, and with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew, and they covered their eyes because they couldn't behold the glory of God. And they covered their feet because it was the symbol um, of, of their own sort of separation between God and themselves. And one called to another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angels. The whole earth is full of his glory. The way the angels describe God is threefold holy. Holy, holy, holy. What does that word mean? It means that God is completely above. God is completely separate. That God is completely beyond. R.C. Sproul, who wrote a book on this, said that, that God's holiness essentially is beyond our comprehension and understanding. But it means that God is God. And we see it as well in Revelation. Again, when Jesus comes back in the end, in the end, and the four living creatures again, sort of angels, or each of them with six wings full of eyes all around them within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we see this vision of God that starts to grow beyond just this doting grandparent who wants to give us good blessings. We have the God of the universe who is completely separate. And then later in Revelation, the angels sing, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. God's holiness means that he is independent. He does not need me. He does not need new life. That God is complete and whole apart from humanity. He didn't need to create us. He created us out of an overflow of love and creativity. God doesn't need anyone or anything. He is completely sufficient, independent on his own, holy. God is unchangeable. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't evolve. He doesn't grow up. He is absolutely unchangeable. Nothing changes his character. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal. He has never been created and he will never cease. He is holy. He is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. There is nothing outside of his control or ability. There is nothing that has ever or will ever surprise him. And then we go, well, what about? And I go, yeah, exactly. What about? I don't know. But it means that God knows what he's doing and uses things that we don't understand in order to fulfill his purposes because he's omnipotent. And we see it most fully displayed in the cross where for a while the cross seemed like an absolute waste but God shows his sovereignty and his power and his goodness in all things. And he's omnipresent, meaning the God of the universe. And this is mind-boggling, but he's here with us in this moment. He's here with us everywhere we go. That he's all places at all times. He is holy. And there is no one else worthy of worship. And I think that is the key of what we see in this book. And it seems selfish, doesn't it, to say that God's chief end is not to be nice to us. God's chief end is that he would be worshipped and glorified by all creatures in all creation. That he is at the center of it all. That is his chief will. 
And it seems selfish, but if you use a little philosophy and you go, well, if God wanted anything else in the center of the world, anything at the center of worship, he put anything, even, even the idea of love, if he put love there, what he's essentially saying philosophically is that love is of higher value and importance and worth than he is, and therefore he's not God and all-powerful. And the way that he has created us, we see in Genesis all the way through, that he's made us to worship him. That that is the center of what it means to be human, fully human, and where we find life. And for God to allow us to worship anything else is actually to deprive us and cause us harm. And God will use means at times that are not nice to drive us back to worshiping him. He does us a disservice to let us wander into idolatry, right? If, 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 if Hudson one day is playing in the yard and decides that he's going to just run into traffic, do I be nice? Go, let's talk about that decision. Oh, I hope that works out well for you. Good luck. No, I'm going to get perhaps a little aggressive and yell and grab and pull. And we see in this book is there are times when God does that with humanity. As I leave you new life, I want to implore you not to lose the holiness of God at the center of the church. Do not replace the holy God of the universe with anything else or any other form of God. We saw in the Old Testament that actually uh, the Israelites were worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, which were fertility gods. Israel in the Old Testament worshiping sexuality. That was at the center of their worship. And what did God do? He tore the temple down. He said, I'm going to get your attention. And it's going to hurt. In the New Testament, we see that the Jewish leadership worshipped their own ideas, their own wisdom, their own rules, their own interpretations. Instead of worshipping Jesus, they weren't willing to acknowledge that God might do something different than they wanted. And what did God do? He tore the temple down. And for us, I think the warning is there as well. That God remains in his holiness, in his fullness, at the center of our worship. Or in Revelation 2, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. God says, there's a threat that I will remove your lampstand, your witness, your power. And so, I, mean, I grew up Presbyterian. And it's been heartbreaking to see the direction that the Synod in Canada has gone following the United Church of Canada, following some of the Anglican churches in Canada, who, if you, if you read the reasoning, is, well, God is obviously nice, right? And so some of this doesn't make sense. That's the reasoning. That's the hermeneutic. And my, my challenge, my call, I implore you to keep the authority of Scripture, the fullness of Scripture, God's revelation to us in its completeness, in its difficulty, in its messiness, in its counterculturalness, that we would keep the authority of Scripture at the center and foundation of the church because otherwise it all falls apart. Do not compromise. 
on the holiness of God and the authority of Scripture. As you, as you choose a new leader, as you choose a new direction and vision, my, I call, I implore you as a church, because there will even be temptation within our denomination to compromise on these things. Find someone who will relentlessly hold to the authority of Scripture and continually, week after week, point you to the holiness of God. That we might all, that you might all stand in awe and reverence and worship of the God who is holy, holy, holy. If you're new here this morning, well, that was a lot. Um, um, as, as you may have heard, uh, well... No, but um, listen, if you're new here this morning, uh, that was an in-house conversation. And, and what, what I want to leave you with is, is the God who is holy, the God who is eternal, the God who is above it all, the God who disdains sin as a mother disdains the cancer that's killing her child. That God, that, that the, the word that we use is the transcendent God who is above it all, also sees us in our brokenness and becomes imminent. And on the cross, Jesus says, uh, he, he said at one point, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And while yes, sometimes God will destroy the temple, Jesus also was destroyed himself. He went to the cross in order to pay for the sin and the brokenness in your life. And it's that same transcendent holy God who wants to meet with you because he's omnipresent here in this room with you right now, who wants to take your sin and your mess and that junk in your life and crucify it on the cross on his son Jesus, so that you can know him and walk unhindered with him into life, into freedom, into hope, and into joy. And know this God that transcends all understanding. That is the God that we worship. And isn't that a God worthy of worship? The God of the universe, holy, 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 nailed to a Roman cross, not because he needs us, not because he's like some junior high kid desperate for a prom date and is just waiting by the phone so we'd call him. But the God of the universe who is independent and holy and simply out of the overflow of his love reaches out and says, I want to make a way for you to show you how worthy of worship I am. Love you. Let me pray. God, help us to see you as holy, 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 that we would not bow to the pressure of our culture, that we would not bow to the pressure of sin in our own lives, but that we would fix our eyes on you and see you as holy, holy, holy God of the universe, that we would bow our knee and submit to the authority of Scripture, allowing it to define who you are and in turn defining who we are as worshipers of you. God, we acknowledge that you're not simple. You're not easy to figure out. And that you're not one of us but God, that you love us. Help us to follow you. 
In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.